We are in the middle of the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. At the end of chapter 5, Jesus was challenging his audience then, and he is certainly challenging us now as he talks about the heart of God. Last time, Jesus talked about what the people had heard regarding the law, and he sought to set them straight by giving a series of six comparative statements. He said, you have heard that it was said this, but I say to you this. Six comparisons of things the people had heard, things that were passed along to them, versus what Jesus declared as being the truth. And in doing so, Jesus got to the heart of the matter by talking about the matter of the heart. He talked about our inward attitudes as opposed to just our outward actions. Because as our hearts are changed inwardly, then it comes out outwardly. So, he, so again, he's instructing them concerning the things that, that they had heard. But as we come to chapter 6, there's a shift from what they have heard to what they have seen. Uh, he says, I've told you what you've heard of all, the, all these things, and I've given you the correct interpretation. Now let me talk to you about the things that you have, have seen, especially in the people who you consider to be the most, the most righteous. He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember the principle in chapter 5, verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Because their righteousness was a self-righteousness. They liked to pat themselves on the back because they did certain things outwardly, but it was all outward, not inward. So Jesus speaks to them about things which they have seen, and he's talking about being genuine, being authentic. And he, he uses a word to contrast that which is genuine, the word hypocrite. Of course, many of you know, hypocrite in, in the Bible, it's a literally, the, the Greek term literally means a stage actor. The term comes from the theater. You go to a theater and you see someone putting on a mask to play a part. They're going to play the part of the villain or the hero or the heroine. And, and that person is an actor. They are a hypocrite. But over the years, it took a, a negative connotation and it was used for a person who was not on a stage, but was misrepresenting themselves or acting like someone they're really not. They were putting on a show. So now when we hear the term, we're like, that's not good. I mean, that's like an accusation to be called a hypocrite. Nobody likes to be called a hypocrite. Jesus uses the term three times in chapter 6. Notice in verse 2, he says, therefore, when you do a char charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Look down to the second occurrence in verse 5, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. And we'll get to that. And then down in verse 16, we see the third incident. He says, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. So Jesus is correcting some things that they had seen that were really hypocritical particularly in the areas of giving, praying, and fasting. So Jesus is addressing three acts of devotion. And he is correcting their misunderstanding of these things because of what they had seen, by, or seen in the outward actions of the religious leaders. They were putting on a mask. They were playing a part in order to make people think that they were more spiritual than they really were, which made them appear more important than they really were. More important to everyone who is watching on. So Jesus is addressing 
the motives of the heart. Are we really doing what we do for God? Or is it to try to impress people? That's what we have before us this morning. What are the motives of the heart? And first, he addresses giving. If you would read with me, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, charitable deeds or acts of mercy. That's the Greek term. It's a merciful action to someone who needs a helping hand. It's giving alms uh, to people. It's helping people out. And this could be in terms of your time, physically serving in some way, or even your money. And he starts with this warning. Be careful. Take heed. Watch it. Why? Because whenever you do something good, there is a danger in it. We have a natural tendency to want to be acknowledged for the good things that we do. We want people to know, hey, did you notice I gave this or I did this? That is the natural tendency. It's our human nature. It's our fallen nature to want to receive some recognition and have people tell me that I'm awesome uh, when I do those things. And it can become our motivation to where we even give or do charitable deeds simply for the opportunity to be seen by other people. These are, these are, uh, or there are people who will give of their time, give of their talents, give of their treasure, simply so they can bask in the accolades and the admiration. It strokes the ego. So Jesus addresses the danger of cultivating the image of righteousness. Remember, Jesus has just shown uh, God's righteous standard in chapter 5. And per perhaps he's anticipating the thought that, well, hey, wouldn't everyone be impressed if I was like that? If I looked like the scribes and Pharisees? I think if we're honest, we realize it's almost impossible to do spiritual things in front of other people without at least having that passing thought of what their opinion is of us as we're doing those things. Whether it's, are they thinking better of us? Are they thinking less of us as I'm doing this spiritual thing? We become self-conscious. Now, what Jesus is addressing does not contradict his previous command where he says to let your light shine before men, back in chapter 5. He says, let your light shine before men. We are to be seen doing good works, but we must not do the good works simply to be seen. That's his point. Because look at what he adds at the end of verse 1. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. God doesn't bless those who just want to be seen by other people. Why? Because the motive is wrong. God cares about our motives. He cares about the why. Why we do what we do. Because when we do charitable deeds for accolades and recognition, we're really stealing God's glory. That's what we're doing. That's, that's why he's addressing this. We're stealing the glory that belongs to God, and we're trying to take credit for something that, as if we did it. So when we do them, those things for attention and for applause from other people, their attention and their applause, that is our reward. That's it. It's that's the reward, that's what he's saying here. It's much better to receive a reward from your Father in heaven. Verse 2, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before, before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. 
Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Notice that Jesus says, when, not if. He assumes that we will be givers, that we will do charitable deeds. I think that is important to to point out. It was Jesus who said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I have found that to be true in my own life. And in some areas, that's taken me a while as I've gotten older to appreciate that more and more. But I believe that. And the more that I do that, the more I experience the blessing of being a giver. But when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you. Don't go, hey, everybody, look at me do this thing, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. So Jesus uses the word hypocrite here because he's talking about people who were playing a part. They were pretending to be someone they were not. They were putting on a show. So Jesus says, when you give, don't sound a trumpet. Don't call attention to yourself. That is what the hypocrites do. And why do they do it? He says in verse 2 that they may have glory from men because it strokes the ego, because they want people to think, wow, aren't you amazing? Now, outside the church, you know, we see people do this all the time. Uh, You see on TV or some news piece about some technology mogul giving $100 million to some organization or some movie star who's donating millions of dollars to charity. And people say, oh, that's such a wonderful thing. They're so amazingly generous. Now, I don't know their motive, and that's part of the point. Only God knows our motives. I don't know their motive. Only God knows that. But, first of all, it's all over the news. (laughs) It's broadcast all over the news. They're taking pictures, there's photo ops, they're posing with people, and it seems so impressive. There's a lot of publicity in those situations, or oftentimes. It's also a good tax write-off. There is that too. Maybe I'm just being practical in the whole thing. But when you're making hundreds of millions of dollars, you you don't want all of your money to go to the IRS, so there's charitable giving for that reason. So we understand why the world gives in that way, but the tragic thing is when a Christian would give in such a way as to be seen. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. And it's interesting, that phrase, to be seen by men, or the the word seen is a Greek word from where we get the term theater. It means to gaze at. It's to command attention so that people look at you. You're doing something to be noticed by people. It's giving money or doing charitable deeds or going on that missions trip just for the photo op or to get your name uh, on a plaque or your name on the wing of a building. Why would you want a plaque for when when you're losing your reward that you're going to get in heaven? Why would you want to lose that reward for something here and now? Because when that happens, notice Jesus says in verse 2, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. In other words, That's it. That's your reward. Congratulations. The word reward, by the way, literally means paid in full and receipted. So if you're looking for accolades, that was it. That was your reward, that brief applause, that trumpet blast. And if you do these things to be seen by men, then you've received your payment in full. So at that point, that's it. God owes you nothing. So you're either going to get your reward now by people, or get the pats and get all the pats on the back, all the, oh, you're so wonderful, or you can wait and let God do it. 
And from everything I read in the Bible, he does a way better job of rewarding than the world does. Uh, so he says, don't do it like they do it to be seen, for they have their glory from men. Well, then how should we give? Verse 3. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Again, Jesus assumes we will, when you do, if it were possible, our giving is to be even hidden from ourselves, if that were possible. Now, obviously, you can't uh, truly be ignorant of your own giving, but we can deny ourselves any indulgent self-congratulations in doing so. He says, you don't need to make a, de a big deal about it. Just give without all of the fanfare. Why? Verse 4, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. In other words, when I stand before God, that's when he gives out the rewards, whether I'm doing a charitable deed to an individual or an organization or giving to my church. The truth is that that is when God will reward me, when I stand before him. Now, some might ask, well, what if somebody finds out that I've given something? What if they discover that I've done this? Do I automatically lose my reward? No. In fact, here's the, here's the thing. It is a matter of motive. If I give for my own glory, it doesn't matter if no one finds out. I would still get no reward from God. But if I give for God's glory, it doesn't matter who finds out because my reward will remain because I've given for the right motive. So it's a heart check. Why am I doing it? Why am I doing these things? By the way, we're all going to pass from this life and at some point, and everything we have here will eventually belong to someone else. Think about that. You know, everything you have in your house, it's going to belong to someone else, whether they want it or not. We're all going to leave it behind one day. Uh, we, there's going to be that part that the IRS gets. They're definitely going to get their chunk of it. And then your, your family is going to get the rest, or whoever you write into your will might get some of those things. But you're not worried about that because you will be with the Lord and he will reward you for those things that you did from the right motive. I love what John Trapp, he said, Oh, let us rather seek to be good than seem to be so. That's good. So Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites trying to put on a show. Be concerned about eternity and storing up treasure in heaven, which he will talk about later in chapter 6, uh, later on in his sermon. So I won't go too much deeper into that particular topic. So he, he continues now to address the matter of pretending to be spiritual, talking now about praying. Praying in verses 5 through 8. If you would look at verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Again, like giving, he assumes we will pray. It's when, not if. Jesus assumes that believers will want to talk with God, but he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Now, that's interesting. Hypocrites like to pray. But it's not because they want to have a relationship with God. They want to pray because they want other people to see them praying. And Jesus gives the perfect illustration in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 18, verse 10, 
he talks about two men who go into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And Jesus says the Pharisee, he stood and he prayed thus with himself. He, he, he isn't praying, praying to God, really. He is praying with himself. He's listening to himself articulate all these beautiful theological words and, and listening to how eloquent he sounded. And he goes, oh, that's good. That sounded really good when I said that. And he's like, thank you, Lord. I'm not like these other men. Or even like this tax collector right here that I'm standing, kind of praying at the guy. And he, he talks about, I fast twice a week. And I give tithes of all that I possess. And then Jesus said, the other guy, the tax collector, he stood far off. He wouldn't even so much as look up to heaven, but he's just beating his chest. And he says, oh, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man, the tax collector, he went away justified before God. So hypocrites like to pray, but they like to pray with themselves. It's an attention getter. It says, he continues, For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. They like to pray in two places. One is the synagogue, or which we would understand why someone would want to pray in, in church or in some kind of congregational gathering. And you really can't judge someone for that. I mean, how do you know what their motive is for praying? You, you don't. They're in church or they're in synagogue. But then he says, they like to pray on the corners of the streets. That's kind of weird. I mean, if you think about it in our context today, could you imagine if you're driving uh, by here uh, you know, on a Saturday afternoon like yesterday when the, a lot of traffic is going on, you drive by Harvey Road, you turn left on Texas Avenue, and there on the street corner, it is this, somebody's out there, they're praying, they're, they're with their hands lifted up, they're talking out loud, they're just kind of walking back and forth, they appear to be praying, and you're like, wow. Now, some people look at that and think, well, they're so spiritual. They love, they love the city. They're just praying for this city. They're so bold. No, that would just be weird. I mean, if you saw me out there doing that, you should pull over and get me in the car and, and, and talk to me or something. This is what Jesus is addressing. They're doing it to be seen. And that's what he's talking about. These hypocrites pray not to be heard by God, but to be seen by men. Their motive was wrong. He so, so he says, assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Again, those praying to be seen by men have their reward, and they should enjoy it because that's all they're going to get. There's no reward in heaven for such prayers. Verse 6, but you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Shut the door. That's the opposite of trying to make a scene, doing it publicly. Get away. Get alone with God. Do it in secret. Now, is Jesus saying that you should never, ever pray in public? No. Jesus prayed public prayers before crowds of people uh, throughout his ministry. He prayed out loud in front of his disciples. But our public prayer is to be the outflow of our private prayer. Your public prayer reflects your private prayer. If you have a problem praying publicly, praying with people, praying in a small group, praying in a, in a prayer circle of some kind, if you have a problem doing that out loud, could it be that maybe you have some growth that needs to take place in your private prayer life? What is done in private will make its way to the surface. 
But the point Jesus is making, he goes, close the door. Do this in secret. Why? We need quiet time. We need a quiet place to get alone with God where there are no interruptions. And I know, I know, I remember when I had small kids that it's more difficult to find the quiet place and the quiet time to do so. But to fight for that, find that place for however long you can get to just you, to get alone with you and the Lord together. And that's when you can focus and concentrate on what God is trying to say to you in that time that you have set aside. Where you can say, Lord, it's me. Just, just me and you. It's, I've got your word. Lord, speak to me as we pray and as I read. Now, this is so good. The specific Greek word for room, it was used for a storeroom where treasures were kept. So this is a reminder that there are treasures waiting for us in our prayer closet. And that's so true. I found that when, when the doors are shut and when I close myself off when, from all the other stuff and, and just get alone with him, that God shows up. If I wait long enough, if I, I sit long enough, that's what we read here. It's important to have a quiet time in a private place where we can't impress anyone but God. No one but God. And verse 7, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. I want to read that verse from a couple of other translations. The Phillips translation says this, And when you pray, don't rattle off long prayers like the pagans who think they will be heard because they use so many words. Or the New Living Translation, When you pray, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do, they think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Now, is Jesus saying that all prayers should be short? Like, you check, Lord, good morning, here I am, just checking in, bye. No, that's not what he's saying. He is speaking against the saying of these long prayers that, that happened for two reasons. One, with the belief that the longer the prayer is, the more powerful and the more spiritual it is. Or that just doing it, they're seeking to be seen by others and being more spiritual. And it's interesting. If you compare the prayer of the prophets of Baal to the prophets or the prayer of the prophet Elijah, there is a massive difference. Elijah's prayer is just a few words. Of course, first of all, Elijah is praying to the true God. That is always helpful when you're praying, that you're praying to the true God. Uh, he's praying that, and he's praying from his heart. His neck is on the line. He's praying authentically, genuinely from his heart to the true God. The prophets of Baal talk about vain repetition. In 1 Kings chapter 18, it says they prayed from morning until noon. That is a long prayer. Uh, they cried out. They were crying out over and over. Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, listen to us. And it says, but there was no voice. There was no answer. Why was there no voice and no answer? Because there's no Baal. There, 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 it was a false god. People just made up this god Baal. There's only one god, one true god, Yahweh, the Lord of lords. And people say, well, you have your god, I have my god. No, there's God. There's the almighty god, Jehovah God. Everything else is fake. So the prophets of Baal cried out to Baal from morning until noon with vain repetition, but that didn't work. So Elijah starts mocking them. He goes, maybe, maybe you need to pray louder. 
Maybe, maybe they fell asleep. They can't hear you, so pray louder. Or maybe he's away on business. Or you, know, you just have to wake him up. And, and they would just start, start doing that. He's taunting them. So they start leaping up. They're up, leaping up and down on the altar. They're shouting even louder. They even start to cut themselves. The idea among the heathen people is that, well, I have to persuade my gods by my strong language and by my repeated words. I have to say it over and over again until they finally relent and say, stop, okay, I'll give you what you want. That was their idea of how to go to God. That's how the heathen believed their gods to be, that you had to persuade them and change their minds. Elijah, he walks up and he says, Lord, you are God. I know that you are God. Uh, they don't know that, but my neck is on the line. Lord, would you show up in a mighty way? Show yourself strong. Amen. That was his prayer. And fire fell from heaven, and it consumed the altar. It consumed the sacrifice. It even consumed all of the water. Fire consumed the water. And the message was loud and clear that, uh, about who the true and living God was. Adam Clark said, prayer requires more of the heart than the tongue. Charles Spurgeon said, Christian, Christians' prayers are measured by weight, not by length. That's so true. It's about what's coming from the heart. Is it authentic? Is it genuine? Verse 8, therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Now, you understand, we don't pray to tell God things he didn't already know before we told him. God knows, but he likes to hear us say it. He likes to hear us ask it. We pray to commune with and appeal to a loving God who wants, he wants us to bring everything we have to him. It's like your kids that come to you. You like your kids to come to you and, and talk to you and, and communicate with you. Prayer isn't about God getting God to do what you want him to do. It isn't about bending God's arm. Prayer isn't about getting my will done, on, done in heaven. It's about getting his will done on earth. And what I find in prayer is that as I pray, as I spend time with the Lord, God begins to change my will. He bends my will. He changes my heart. And so it's not to try to overcome his reluctance to work in some certain area of my life, I find myself taking hold of his willingness. And, and if I yield to him in doing so. And the reality is that God wants to bless us. He does want to bless us. He wants to show up in our times of prayer. And he does. He does. Prayer is such an important aspect of our walks with the Lord. All he wants for us is to be genuine, like like you're sitting down and just having a conversation with somebody else. Let you just be, be real. Um, having a conversation. And then, like in a conversation with someone else, at some point, you stop talking and you listen. Sometimes we like to do all the talking. And we don't listen for God to speak to us. Uh, through his word, as we're reading his word, and just allow, meditating on it, allowing it to speak to us, or in le letting the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. So there's a time of listening. You begin to develop, to develop this rich time with the Lord. In fact, it's so rich, and it's so important. Look at the verses that follow in verse 9. And you recognize it. It's what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer, because in verses 9 through 15, he is teaching us how to pray. 
And we probably all know this prayer, right? Uh, we've probably said it in times of emergency. Oh, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, that will be done. You know, we've, we've done that prayer before repetitiously. But Jesus didn't just teach us to not pray repetitiously and then give us a prayer to pray repetitiously. So next time, well, the week after Easter, we'll look in more depth at these verses. When you come back, we're going to talk about this prayer, what it's all about, and how it's a model for our time of prayer. But we're going to continue on this morning in, in what he is addressing, what Jesus is addressing in terms of the motives of the heart. And we're going to look at verse 16, where he now talks about fasting. Verse 16, moreover, when you fast. So Jesus assumes that like we give and like we pray, we will also fast. Now, fasting has actually become kind of popular today. Uh, there are people who fast for various reasons uh, to lose weight. Some do it to cleanse their body of toxins. Some people do it for a nicer skin tone or for all kinds of reasons. However, biblically speaking, people fast to deprive themselves physically for a period of time in order to devote themselves spiritually to the Lord. It's to deprive yourself physically to devote yourself spiritually. Now, let me define what a fast is. Technically, it's not eating. Just taking a period of time and not eating food. You all fasted last night when you were asleep. You were not eating for that eight or however many hours you were in bed. You were not eating, so you were fasting. Thus, you broke fast breakfast. That's why we get the word breakfast. You're breaking your fast. Typically, in Old Testament times, they would, they would fast for a 24-hour day without food. So no food. I know there's lots of different approaches people take today. Well, I'm, I'm not going to eat meat, or I'm not going to eat red meat, or I'm not going to eat sweets and all those kinds of things. And, and those might be things that the Lord does call you to do. But I just want to give you the biblical definition. It's not, not eating food for a day or however many days. When Jesus fasted in the desert, it was for 40 days without food. Now, with that, uh, a fast was prompted for various reasons. It could be because of sorrow or grief that someone doesn't want to eat. They just take it upon themselves to fast. It could be brought upon them when they were in danger. Maybe an imposing enemy was coming in. And they would fast as a nation to seek the Lord together, many times in regard to repentance or some special revelation from God or some new task or, or new ministry from the Lord, that they would spend a time in fasting. So with all that, fasting is not a holy diet. It isn't a way to, quote, lose weight in Jesus' name. It's not for that purpose. It is merely a means to set aside my natural appetite so I can hear from the Lord for his direction, for his heart, and his will. In fact, as we look at the Old Testament, there was only one day out of the year that Jews were required to fast. And that was the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And on that one day each year, the people were to humble themselves. They were to fast and humble themselves. They were to forsake food 
And it was an act of self-denial in regard to repenting of their sins over the past year. And it was a national fast. The whole nation was fasting. Men, women, children, even the animals. They would not feed the animals that day. It was a national fast. And the children were taught from a young age, this is a serious time to set aside to the Lord. Now, people will, will fast for certain special occasions, but only one day out of the year was it commanded by God. Do you know how often the Pharisees fasted? Twice a week. Two times a week. I already referenced the Pharisee praying, he and the tax collector, he was bragging about fasting twice a week. They fasted two times a week. So the law commanded just once a year, the Pharisees took it to the next level. We're going to do it not just once a week, twice a week. And you know what? We know what days they did it. The second day and the fifth day of the week. Why? Those were the busiest times in the market. It's when the most people would be out uh, circulating in the market. And again, it was to be seen by other people. So people would see how spiritual they were so they could appear to be spiritually superior to everyone else. By the way, when it comes to our fasting or or that command of Yom Kippur, we, we realize that Jesus Christ died on the cross and he fulfilled the law and he fulfilled the day of atonement. He fulfilled that. He became our atonement. He redeemed us so we are no longer under that Old Testament law. So as we read the New Testament, we don't find a command to fast in the New Testament. It is voluntary. It's something we do as the Lord directs us. But Jesus does assume that there will be times in our lives when we will be directed to fast. Maybe there's something serious coming in your future. Maybe there's a, a serious decision you have to make or some, something heavy on your heart or maybe it's for repentance of some certain thing. There will be times when God will move upon your heart to take a season, to take a period of time to fast. So Jesus says, when God does that, when God puts that on your heart, verse 16, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad, a sad countenance For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. He's saying that they would actually make themselves look worse than they really were. To make themselves look more hungry than they really were. And and if if anyone's ever fasted, or anytime you, even if you don't intend to, you know, when you miss a meal and, and you go, you miss lunch or something, and you know, three in the afternoon, and you feel it, you know, like, oh, I'm just so starving. And we tend to over-exaggerate that. We're not really starving, uh, but we're really hungry, and we can over-exaggerate that. Well, they would pretend to look sick and gaunt and maybe tatter up their clothing a bit, mess up their hair, and, and just they would make themselves look so bad to people so that people would go, wow, you must be really spiritual. Look at you. you, you you're probably fasting, aren't you? So it was not an act of humility, but a deliberate act of spiritual pride. It was a pretentious display. Their hearts were not moved under conviction of repentance over their sin or anything like that. They just wanted to be seen by people. It was all an act to look more holy than they really were. By the way, I mean, there was a time in the history of the church where being gloomy and sad and dark, just just giving this gloomy disposition... There was a time when that was seen as a sign of holiness. 
That was a sign of true piety. And you actually see in some denominations today where you know, the priest will wear black and look all gloomy and sad. That's where it comes from in the history of the church. It stems back to that idea. But it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. We are alive in Christ. We don't focus on just the death and being gloomy and sad. We are to be joyful. And here are these guys. They're putting on this big act. And Jesus says, verse 16, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. It's paid in full. It is receded. And this would be true of us if we go around trying to make people think that we are super spiritual, either by the way we give, by the way we pray, or telling people that we're fasting, or whatever it might be that we do to try to impress people so, so that they say, oh, aren't you spiritual? That's it. That's our reward. So Jesus says, rather than that, verse 17, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Now we understand washing your face. Don't put stuff on that makes you look all pale and sickly. Look fresh. But the idea of anointing your head is that in the Middle East, it's very arid and dry. And it was customary, even uh, when you would greet someone who came into your home, that you would offer them oil to put on their face or even on their hands. So the idea is to freshen up. You know, look normal, essentially. <laughs> Just look normal. Don't put on a show. Don't, you don't need to let other people know about what you're doing. It's between you and the Lord anyway. And that's what Jesus says in verse 18, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So maybe you are fasting. Maybe you're taking a time where you're fasting and seeking the Lord. In fact, maybe it is tough, and it can be tough, but you don't have to let anybody know. Instead, just let your Father know who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. It's between you and the Lord. And God will reward you. And that's what it's all about anyway. He is the one who put it on your heart to do that specific thing and to him be the glory for it. So Jesus gets to the matter of the heart by talking about the motives of the heart. Our motive for giving, our motive for praying, our motive for fasting. That we're doing these things not for our personal recognition accolades and affirmation from others, but for the Lord. So it's a time to, to check our hearts before the Lord. And, and it's not so that we, oh, well, if I did it the wrong heart, I should just stop doing that. that. You've completely missed the point if that's your takeaway. No, it's to check your heart and ask God to change your heart, to change your motive for why you do the things you do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.